All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the last portion in this chapter. And I don't know about you, but I find a lot of the things in this last year have really made me question whether or not I really understand how our government operates. A lot of the things that I've seen this past year have been predictions, assumptions, statements that ended up being partially true or blatantly false, as stated by our government officials. And one of the hardest things, I think, for me in this position as a pastor is to, as Scripture says, submit to those that rule over you and ultimately as Romans chapter 13 states clearly that we are given the government to punish evildoers. Well, what happens when the government does not do that and becomes evil itself and does many of the things that Scripture would be against? What do we do then? This morning we're going to be talking specifically about the illegal arrest of Paul and Silas. You see, Scripture speaks to the things that we're going through today. It will never be outdated, no matter how many times people say, oh, that's 2,000 years ago, what does that really have to do with today? The truth is, people have not changed all that much. People have the same tendencies, governments operate very similar in many cultures, and as we look at the text this morning, we're going to see that illegal arrests back then occurred, they still will occur today, and will continue to occur in the future. And for us as a church, it's important to see how it is that Scripture tells us we should respond to what culture deems different than what Scripture states. So we're going to be looking at three things here in this text. Number one, the quiet dismissal in verses 35 through 36. Number two, the surprising admission in verse 37. And number three, the terrifying result, verses 38 through 40. So number one, the quiet dismissal, verses 35 through 36. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. You see, what's incredible in this text as we read this, and we, we discussed this a few weeks ago, is that Paul and Silas went through so much in just one day. They were falsely accused, they were beaten, thrown into prison, and an earthquake shook the foundation of that prison, opening the doors for them to escape leading to an opportunity for them to share the gospel with the jailer. And that jailer coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized that very night. And here we're met with a very simple response in the morning. Uh, now you can go. All of this was within a span of 24 hours. So the question is, why did they decide to now let them go? I mean, why, why was it such an easy statement for them to make and say, hey, you know what, just let these men go? One position that holds a lot of weight is that the earthquake would have declared to those that were superstitious during that time in Philippi that the gods were angry at their abuse of these men. 
This may have bothered their conscience and caused this response. The officer, or policemen, if you will, were the ones that were sent by the magistrates, those that would rule on this case, even though they didn't give a fair trial, obviously. They were the ones that were sent, the officers were sent by the magistrates to the ones that were condemned for teaching things that were harming the Jewish community, apparently, and the relationship with the Roman government by teaching insubordination. That's what the accusation was. In fact, Paul and Silas were a threat to society, according to them. If you were to put it in the modern vernacular, a threat to their democracy, right? How many times have we heard that? Remember, as we've mentioned before, Paul and Silas were easy targets. Why were they easy targets? Because there was persecution already against the church. There was persecution of the Jews under Emperor Claudius, which made Paul and Silas a relatively easy target. So when the government will back you up, why not use it to your advantage? That's what happened in this case. They got others in trouble because the government was already behind them in their movement. I want to read again what happened as a refresher because sometimes we forget how this whole thing went down. Go back earlier in the chapter, verses 19 through 24. Here's what it says. But when her masters, that would be the demon-possessed girl who Paul cast the demon out, saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison, into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So notice a couple things that we may miss just by way of review here. The accusation only became serious when there was a profit loss for the masters. It's not that they were really disrupting all that much because they were already preaching. They had a prayer meeting going on. But as soon as money was involved and there was a profit loss, this is when things changed. The masters of the demon-possessed girl didn't care as long as they could still make money. As soon as they were losing money, then they really cared. The accusation was one of danger to society, not necessarily their personal loss that was really what they were after. They were, they were arguing that this is a greater danger to the community itself. And by the way, there's blatant anti-Semitism that's mentioned here in this text. These men being Jews is what they're declaring. So when you're saying, hey, anti-Semitism is prevalent today, listen, church, it's prevalent today, it was prevalent back then as well. It's been going on throughout history. And they're saying that they're teaching customs not lawful for us being Romans. So what they're arguing is Paul and Silas are teaching things that are against the Roman government. We're under the Roman rule and they're trying to make us rebel against that. That's what they're arguing. When Paul's 
point was not at all to speak about the Roman government, but to declare Christ. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Paul, out of annoyance, finally turns to that girl and casts the demon out. It wasn't exclusively a gospel issue that occurred there. Well, what's interesting is the magistrate, magistrates, if you look early in the chapter, they tore off their clothes in a, in a sign of fake outrage. These men are absolutely disastrous. Have you ever seen fake outrage? It's prevalent today. If there's one thing that I can't say is more true and more frequently seen throughout this world is fake outrage. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to what media freaks out over. They have so much fake outrage, it's amazing how frequently we don't assume that this has been the way man has been all along. They have been. Fake outrage was going on back then, it's going on today. It's a common practice to this day. When someone is accused, everyone makes a big deal out of it. What's even more ironic is that the accusation many times is the same accusation that could be made about the people that are accusing. It's absolutely stunning how much outrage there is for those who fought against lockdowns or even vaccinations, but how little outrage there really is in this country over those that started this whole thing and perpetrated it on the world. It's amazing to me that now we're blaming everybody else but the people that perpetrated this. All this fake outrage we're seeing today is nothing new. The ones blamed for the pandemic spreading weren't the, weren't the ones that people are going after. The outrage is absolutely misguided and we're falling for it as Americans. The media tells us that our fellow Americans are to blame for what's going on. And they're the cause for all your mishaps in life. Particularly this past year. They're the reason why you can't return to normal. The reality is they've covered for the real perpetrators. As someone said, the government will break your leg and give you a crutch and tell you that they fixed your problem. You see, fake outrage still works, church. And unfortunately, it happens also in the church context. Where people go out of their way to point at their fingers at others, when in reality, internally, they are just as guilty. And we become pharisaical in declaring that others are to blame for what we ourselves actually cause. Fake outrage still works and will be used against the people of God throughout history. It has and it will. Church, you need to understand this. These are things in Scripture that we are to glean from and not just ignore. We ought not fall for emotional manipulation that our culture falls to. Whether it comes from the left or right, whether it comes from our government, our media, our friends, our family members, we need to see beyond the fake outrage and, and see it for what it really is. Follow the facts. You see, the magistrates didn't follow the facts here. They went off the outrage of the crowd and faked outrage themselves. 
Truth is, they wanted to make a statement here, so they beat them and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. There's such a threat to our society, you better make sure you make a public example of these men. And make sure that we keep them secure in the jail, because they're a real threat to society. Yes, Paul and Silas were so dangerous, singing those hymns in the jail. Real rebels. You better watch them closely. Put them in the inner jail so they can't escape. Although I do wonder at times if these magistrates heard about what happened to Peter earlier in Acts and they were afraid that might happen again. You see, it's taken me some time to see this for myself, but the overdramatic statements made by our government media and even radio hosts make it difficult to see what the truth is, even today. What's most eye-opening is the amount of accusations of impropriety made against others, accusing others for what they themselves commit. Church, we ought to be willing to stand for truth even when it seems like we're the crazy ones to the world. Less than 24 hours later from being falsely arrested, imprisoned, an earthquake, a jailer getting saved, you can go now. After we falsely arrested you, beaten you, imprisoned you, now you can go. Quietly. We don't want to make a scene here. So how does Paul respond here? Paul's not having any of it. Number two, the surprising admission, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly. That means they publicly did this to us. Uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now they, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Paul comes right out and tells them they've made a big mistake in accusing us because we're Roman citizens. Their mistake in saying that we're a threat to society is absolutely false. By the way, Paul was not from Philippi. Paul's from Tarsus, a free province of Rome. And though there's this dispute as to how Paul got his citizenship, he's a Roman citizen. He was born in a Roman colony, which gave him the rights of a Roman citizen, particularly when it comes to Tarsus. They were given protections of a Roman citizen. Roman law forbid, by the way, this is what these magistrates broke as far as law goes, it forbid the beating of a Roman citizen without a trial. Forbid. Essentially what happened here is they broke Roman law. The arrest, beating, and imprisonment were all illegal. They were breaking Roman law right there. In fact, the magistrates themselves could have faced jail time for what they did here. Possibly even death. Because it was done illegally. They jumped to a false conclusion that these men were not Roman citizens. So Paul is telling them openly, you wanted to do this publicly? 
why don't you publicly release us as well? You want him to run this sham publicly? Why don't you own it publicly, please? You know what you did was wrong. They should come get us out, not send someone else to do their dirty work. That's a common occurrence. Oh, the magistrates didn't want to deal with this, so they sent the officers to deal with this. You guys be the messengers for us. Let them know they could go. Just quietly, don't make a scene. Nothing new here. Wicked rulers usually send someone else to do their dirty work. Never mind to make the matter go away quietly if they made a mistake. Church, if you believe that people have changed all that much, I got... This word of God is timeless. People are doing the same thing today that they were doing back then and falsely ac accusing people. And then hiding when that accusation turns out to be false. Nothing's changed throughout history. You will have loud accusations with headlines, but a quiet retraction in page 38 of a big newspaper. That's like a small paragraph. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's amazing how small the retraction is compared to the big headline news in the accusation. The retraction is rarely given as much exposure as the original damning statement that's made. True today as it was back then. So be careful when you say the good old days were better. The question that is brought up here is, why did Paul come out and say this now? Why didn't he do it earlier? Why did Paul finally give him this statement now? Because apparently they're very shocked and surprised by Paul's admission here. Well, there's a couple possible reasons for that. One is, the accusation and uproar was so loud that Paul didn't even have a chance to defend himself. By the way, if Paul was found to be lying about his Roman citizenship, he could have been executed right on the spot. Putting him in more danger, possibly, if he spoke out of turn. The truth is, God had a greater mission for him in jail to lead that jailer to saving faith. And it was not simply just because Paul could or could not make a statement. There, God had a greater plan in all of this. Paul's demand for open transparency about their release was not just a personal offense he wanted to make right. But it was very possibly to clear the way for the church community in that area to not come under harassment and charges that had happened with him. You see, Paul's looking beyond himself. Paul's going, if you can falsely accuse me, you can falsely accuse my brethren. So I'm going to stand up for them by standing up for myself here. The future of the gospel ministry mattered to Paul in this city. So he's looking beyond himself and his imprisonment here. In fact, here's what's interesting. Jesus himself calls out the high priest for slapping him wrongfully. I don't know if you remember this. Before Jesus is, is at the cross, he's falsely accused as well. And in John chapter 18, verses 19 through 23, here's what the gospel writer tells us. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. 
Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Jesus, before he pays for our sin on the cross, is falsely accused, and he stands up for himself. The same Jesus that says, turn the other cheek that people misinterpret. This is a constantly misunderstood argument in Scripture in turning the other cheek. So when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, what does he mean by that? One commentator has a great insight on this, and I think every one of us should pay attention to this. In the culture of Jesus' day, listen to this, and in many Eastern cultures even today, the right hand is considered clean, and it is used for clean activities such as eating. The left hand is used for other things and is considered unclean. We won't elaborate. When a person struck someone, it was done with the back of their hand. In this case, Jesus is very specific. The person who is struck is hit on their right cheek. This means that the aggressor used the back of their right hand to strike. This would be the common method of striking someone using the clean hand. By telling his audience to turn the other cheek, Jesus is not telling his listeners to be passive. Jesus is telling them not to retaliate by returning violence for violence. Instead, stand your ground and challenge the aggressor by turning your head and inviting them to strike you on the left cheek, forcing them to use the back of their unclean hand. This would have been an inappropriate use of the left hand, according to their culture, and would create a dilemma for the aggressor. So you see, Jesus isn't telling his listeners to just acquiesce to violence or injustice. Jesus is encouraging us to refuse to cooperate with violence and to challenge the injustice by using a creative response, which is what Paul actually does here as well. Think the phrase that Jesus used, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So what are some of the key points here that we see back in the Acts chapter? We're not to seek revenge. In fact, we are to pray for those that do us harm as Jesus commanded. We are to stand up for what we believe in, though it might cost us something. Giving up is not what's implied in the text. Jesus never clarified for that position, nor did Paul, nor did other writers in the, in the Scripture. Our revenge, if you will, comes in the form of doing right by those that have harmed us. And that includes bringing in the law if they're breaking it. 
Using the law to our advantage, as Paul does here, is the right response. Paul wasn't bending or twisting anything. He's taking the law as stated and saying, you broke it. You broke your own law. And he's calling them out for their lawless behavior. What's interesting is that Joseph actually, in the Old Testament, remember Joseph's brothers sold him off to Egypt? He does something very similar with his brothers. He tests them before he reveals himself to them openly, right? He puts them through a test, giving them pause and thinking about what they had done to him earlier. Paul is simply calling them out for their hypocrisy. That's what Paul's doing here. He's openly destroying their perception of him. Because the reality is they destroyed his reputation by beating him, imprisoning him, only to now quietly have him go away when they publicly did this to him. And they're not wanting to make a scene with the crowd was all that they were after. They weren't really wanting to own anything. They just didn't want this to be a greater commotion. This leads to a terrifying embarrassment for the magistrates here. They miss this very important detail that Paul mentions, that he's a Roman citizen. Number three, the terrifying result, verses 38 through 40. And the officers told these words to the magistrates. So they're reporting right back to them. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So these officers go right back to the magistrates and they report the serious error that they made. By the way, you sent us to quietly tell them to go away. They just came back and told us that they're Roman citizens. Everything we've done is against the law against them. We've made a big mistake. They could be charged for what they had done against Paul and Silas here. It'd be terrible for them if this was found out and carried to Rome. These magistrates are not feeling so tough now. But rather they're afraid that the Roman government could be coming for them now in having done this to Paul and Silas. What is amazing here in this text is that they, in verse 39, they came and pleaded with them. They're back and begging them to not make this much more serious because now their heads are on the line. They're begging for forgiveness from Paul and Silas. Paul, we made a very big mistake. We are so sorry. They begged that they would leave the city quietly still because they were absolutely terrified of what might happen. 
if the crowd from the other day found out the truth. In other words, Paul, please don't file a complaint against us. We're sorry. Here's a very important lesson to be learned here. We're all very quick to openly point out what we see in others, and yet when confronted with reality, we aren't so quick to point out and openly admit where we may have been wrong. You see, a lot of us are a lot more bold in our statement about others, and yet when we're corrected about our misconception of others, we're a little more reserved in owning that, just like these magistrates were. Listen, the truth is we've all made false accusations against others without having all the details. We all have assumed things about each other that are not completely true. Maybe we need to be willing to own where we ourselves are wrong in our assessment of others. There's not a single one of us that have judged another person accurately every time with all their flaws. But what's interesting here is we aren't even accurate to judge our own selves. Let's be honest for a second. How many of us are always accurate judges of our own behavior and our own character? I've always loved what Spurgeon said. If someone accuses you of being terrible, just remind yourself you're worse than what they may assume. I'm misquoting that slightly, but that's the gist of the quote. You're much worse than what others may think of you. You see, Paul's response here is simply to go back to the brethren. He wants to go right back in that city and stay with the brethren. He had a mission. He had a church that he wanted to be in fellowship with. He goes right back to Lydia's house, encouraging the disciples before moving on. You see, Paul's goal ultimately was to gather with believers once again. It's unfortunately how little many disciples of Christ care about fellowship as Paul did. We're content to chill at home, to listen to that podcast, to watch that live stream, to do everything but really make it a priority to gather with believers. Ultimately, media has made it easy for us to consume all these things without really understanding what fellowship is all about. The first thing that Paul wanted after he got out was to gather with believers and encourage them. What would be your first response if you were jailed unlawfully? Would it be to be in fellowship once again? You see, what's different about Paul than us is Paul exits the jail and the prison to encourage the brethren. Oh, wait a second, Paul, you're the one that had this happen to you. Why are you encouraging others? You see, most of us, if we were in jail, we'd be throwing a pity party. And we'd invite people to that pity party, would we not? Oh, please come and hear of my trials for the Lord. 
please hear about how wonderful I am as a saint and how everything's been done to me. And poor me. The pity parties we'd all have if this happened to us would probably be posted on Facebook today. So here's the key that's missed by many. Who encouraged who? Was it the church that encouraged Paul? Or was it Paul that encouraged the church? You see, Paul is the one who encourages the brethren. And I want you to stop for a moment and think about this as we finish this morning. He wasn't waiting for everyone else to check in on him. He wanted to see how everyone else was doing. He wasn't emotionally scarred by just what took place. He realized that God had called him to a greater purpose. So my question to all of us is when we go through these things in life, they may seem to be unbearable weights for us to deal with. Are we quick to throw ourselves a pity party? Or do we take those things that God has, if you will, put in our path in life and use them to encourage other believers? Maybe help someone else that may deal with the same situation years down the road. You see, the problem for many of us is we are very much self-centered. We don't think of others first. We think of ourselves first. And how people need to be there for us. My spouse needs to be there for me. My children are there for me. My church is there for me. My school is there for me. Parents, this is frequent in the Grace Academy school. Who's there for who? Are we there to serve one another? Are we there to be in fellowship with one another and encourage the saints? Or are we there to be encouraged every time? One of the greatest ways that a lot of us can be a blessing to others is by taking those things that God has taught us and not wallowing in self-pity, but realize that God has given those opportunities for us to use as an encouragement in other people's lives. You see, Paul took what happened to him, and mind you, in a 24-hour span, he had quite a bit that went on. Falsely arrested, beaten, imprisoned, an earthquake, shocks everybody, the jailer gets saved, then he's told to quietly go away. But his goal, ultimately, as he's released, is to go back to the church and encourage them. He wasn't looking for a pity party. He learned to be content. By the way, Paul, the same Paul that wrote this in Philippians, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Paul learned this. We can take our cue from him in this area. Take the hardships and difficulties in life and use them as a means of encouragement in others' lives. Rather than throwing yourself a pity party, 
Remember, Scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Paul realizes at the end of the day, God's going to deal with all of this. And let me promise you, church, there are a lot of things that are not going to be brought to justice during people's lifetimes. But God knows. He knows all the things that we think have been left undone. And he will render to everyone according to their works, as Scripture says. The world is not looking for whining Christians. They're always looking to be the victims of society. And listen, church, there may be hardships coming our way, and they're unavoidable. What we don't need to be is a whining church, whining to everyone about what we don't have. We have all that we need in Christ, all that we need. It reminds me of a song that the children sing. I know they do it in school, and I know they've done it in Awanas before. All that I need is my faith in Jesus. All that I need is my home above. All that I need is my Father's mercy. All that I need is my Savior's love. Truth is, church, we've tried to survive on things that don't matter. All that matters, ultimately, is Christ himself. He's the one that gave Paul the strength that he needed here. We should not be the ones that give up in raising our children and thinking, well, the world's doomed anyways, what hope do I have? You are to raise warriors for Christ, church, not cowards. And it's time to buckle up and stand up and not wait for when it gets a lot harder. Start today. You should be preparing today. We are the ones that boldly tell others that without Christ, there is no life. Without any compromise. We are the ones, as believers, that have Esther's re resolve. If I perish, I perish. Church, you need to have that kind of resolve. So in conclusion... Simple question, what do you stand for? What do you stand for? Do others know your stance when it comes to Christ? Do they know your position? Do they know your commitment to Him? Or are they more aware of all the other things but Him? Do you find it important to be left alone than to stand up for the gospel? Do you understand, church, your rights as a citizen of this country? Paul understood his rights as a Roman citizen. We don't just stick our head in the sands and just assume that God will take care of everything. God wants us still to be good, diligent citizens of the country that we are in. And that means know your rights. Understand where the government may be overstepping their boundaries. It's not enough to know what you don't agree with the government on. You need to know what Scripture says, and you need to know what the law of the land is. Paul understood both. Do others see how important the church family is to you? 
How much does the church family mean to you as an individual? Ask yourself that. When you talk to your coworkers, when you talk to your friends, when you talk to those around you that you have dialogues with during the week, what's their take on the church when they talk to you? Does it come up? Is it a passing thought, never brought up? Or man, if only this and this happened in our church, I'd like it a lot more, and then this whole thing, and we're just complaining, throwing pity parties ourselves. Do others see us whine and complain about the difficulties in our lives, rather than seeing that Christ is enough to give us strength through those difficulties? Listen, parents, I think one of the areas that I know I have been convicted on over the years is what do my children see when I'm facing difficulties? Am I quick to complain or am I quick to tell my children that God is who we go to when we're in trouble? And do they realize that he's enough for us as a family? Listen, church, you are to be the salt of this earth. You are to salt this world. People need to notice that there's something about you that's different than those around you. You don't need to throw a pity party about every little thing that's happened to you in this life. You can share the difficulties with tears. But you can point it right back to Christ and how he got you through it. Use the difficulties and trials as a means of encouragement in other believers' lives instead of gathering attention for yourself. One thing that's very frequent for us is we tend to share our difficulties to get ourselves the attention rather than God. Look beyond yourself and your struggles and see what God is teaching you that you may use to encourage others in seeing Christ as precious.